Today, it's a real privilege to have a Vietnam veteran on the podcast. Jess Rachowski served as a medic with Charlie Company's 2 RAR in 1970, and post-Vietnam spent 20 years in the full-time army and 10 years in the army reserve as a medic. Welcome to Care Under Fire, Jess. Did you initially join the army under national service, or did you join once Vietnam no, was done? No, I'm probably one of many that was hanging around with a lot of bad guys, right, at the time. Nothing really bad, you know, just a bit of pinching a car here and there and here and there before mm -hmm. I went in. And uh, I had a solicitor for one of them, and I told the solicitor I'm going to go and join, I'm going to go and sign up. Um, so the solicitor told the judge when he was making a judgment, he's given a year bond, that my client is, has, has signed up, or he told a little lie. My client has signed up, because at that point I didn't, I told him I'm going to, and then I went and did anyway, sign up. And uh, so the judge, you know, gave me like a year bond. And luckily, I did what I did at the time, because most of them end up in prison on drugs. You know, dead. The, the guys are staying around, so this was the best thing for me to go in. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, so it was a fourth um, of February '69. I remember that is the day we went in, and that was Friday. Right. Yeah, that was Friday. Well, the, well, the bus picked up in Melbourne. I thought I should have maybe told lies that I was going to join. <laughs> And and you know, I could have got away with whatever, <laughs> but anyway, it was, and that was February '69, six months with recruit training, medical corps training, going from the hospital to to um, to Singleton, teaching national servicemen at, at the recruit training three, I think it was called three recruit training between the Southern Singleton. National servicemen who were all being spread out to battalions for Vietnam. So here I was teaching a little bit of anatomy and physiology to do all these national servicemen. There's probably doctors amongst them, if we can or, or nurses or something. And then, <clears throat> so from, from February 69, May 70, I was already over there. So in 14 months, from go to where I was already in Vietnam. And then Singleton teaching uh, the Army, uh, teaching the National Servicemen there. And then I asked for a posting. Maybe you should stop doing postings. I want to go back to Melbourne, my attraction. I'm originally from Melbourne, my family is, is here. And I said, yeah, I'm going to tour in Townsville. They're next on the next, next <coughs> bus of. Next cab off the rank for Vietnam. Oh, okay. The other thing also was <clears throat> most of the guys, well, most of the battalions are warned probably two years before that they're going. In my case, I joined the battalion four months before they left. They already created their little niches with their sections, their platoons, their They've been on exercise a thousand times. They've done everything a thousand times to get the training. That's the infantry guys. Okay, so as a medic, 
you went, you didn't join them, you went to admin company and then you were allocated out to. It was very hard, very hard originally to, yeah. to click in with them. They knew who you were, but you were a foreigner. Right? You only come and joined us. Now we've been doing this for the last year and a half, basically, where have you been? So it was very, it was very clicky. Mm. They were very clicky about accepting you. They did accept you because you were medic, but as a friend, socially, it was a little bit hard at the beginning. And then finally, they did accept you, and then you, everything was fine. But I noticed that because they've been training for so long together, you can't just walk in one day and become part of their infrastructure. Yeah. You've got to prove your worth a bit if you don't have that skippy hat badge and you, you're not infantry, but but you've got to prove that you're not going to be a tactical liability and that you're going to be useful and helpful and part of the team. Yeah. takes time. Exactly. You're, 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 in, you're, you're basically infantry anyway. You can carry a weapon like the rest mm. of them here and there, but then if something goes wrong, hey, Doc, can you? And that's where, from the medical perspective, you create the friendships. You're doing the same as them. There's no special thing for you. You're eating the same food as them, you know. And that's when they start to accept you. That, look, you're doing the same as what we're doing. But also the extra bit is, look, you mm. put some sutures in for me or you're yeah. looking after medically. So you become a bit of a mother as well for a lot of them. And yet you're the younger, younger than them. That was what I learned as well. I come and see your things about, oh, I've got a letter from home and there and there, a bit of, a bit of a psychological thing. Nothing to do with treatment, medical, but someone to talk to. And uh, that was good, you know. Yeah, so once you got into the clique, <clears throat> they would defend you till, till death. Um, you looked after a company of about 110 guys because uh, it was three platoons in the company plus the company headquarters and you stayed in the company headquarters. However, at the time also, there was infantry trained medics, right? They were, they were part of the platoon, each of the platoons, three, one per platoon. And they were, they had basically in Australia a, a basic first aid course, you know, on fractures and stop bleeding and stuff like that. But they also carried some medicals, you know, band-aids and all that sort of stuff, and they come under me. And then I came under the doctor back in, back in the base. So they were resupplied through me. They got uh, information from me. They needed help. They'd ring me to talk and blah blah blah. So and, and they come by me. If they had somebody sick while we're in lines, they would bring them to me. I'd have a bit of a check and then send them off. Take them then or tell them I'll meet them to, to see the RMO for further treatment. So. They filtered things through me. So my role, like I said, and uh, and uh, and all the stuff that I carried, um, I was infantryman at the same time. Uh, I carried a weapon. I carried extra ammunition for the gun at times. I also carried an extra pack on my pack with with um, you know basic uh, well, morphine, pethidine, uh, your basic stuff. Uh, no IV fluids because if someone had to be choppered out, the chopper, the dust off helicopter had all the IV fluids and stuff that otherwise you'd be, you'd be carried down. I think at some point we were carrying about 60 pounds. I don't know what that is, yeah. a kilo extra, 
and we worked we we worked on uh, for for going out at two weeks at a time on operations, and every four days you get a resupply for food, water. So basically, for four days you you survived on your own. The food that you took, the water you took, and the ammunition that you took, and then you got resupplied on the fourth day. So usually, if you had someone to send back, because they were, you know, not really well or wherever they were, you waited till the fourth day, where the resupply come in and you chopped them out. Um, I never chopped anybody out in two days because you gave your position away, and the, unless they were dying, you never. They waited for the four days and then you'd send them home on the fourth day or out on the fourth day. And uh, I was very fortunate that I had a really good OC, a guy named uh, uh, Barry Peterson. If anyone ever knows his history, he's written a few books. Um, just And uh, I certainly would buy, put my life on his hands. Um, he come... Um, with a history, he was there as a captain years and years before, become a very, very strong uh, leader of the Montanard people in the mountains there. And it took the CIA and a lot of pressure to get him out of there. He became so influential that they wouldn't do anything without him. And he was, he was like CIA training the, the, the Montanard people. So he was my, he was allowed to come back into the country as an OC, but only as an OC, and not any more to do with Montgomery tribes people out of out of the battalion um, environment. And he was my OC, which I trusted very much. We all did. He was an excellent, excellent OC, um, and um, and he involved me uh, in all the O groups uh, in in everything to do with anything before we went out. I was kept up to date on everything that's happening, which was helpful because I knew what to take then. And um, so he was an excellent guy. And I, like I said, I've, I've certainly put my life in his hands. And, and a, a few stories, well, not stories, but a few real things that happened in contacts and here and there. And he said to me, <clears throat> your job as the doc is to fix them, but you also your job at the same time is to bury them. So. <clears throat> You're right. Sorry, I don't mean ours. <clears throat> I mean, uh, I don't mean our people's berries. Yeah, so <clears throat> I can, I could. I did a vigil, we did a vigil on the 3rd of uh, August just past, um, organised by Canberra <coughs> for the 521 Dell, <coughs> or the for everyone, um, throughout the country. At each side where the 521 guys were buried, they were killed in action, whatever, whatever. Um, and everyone's accounted for, <coughs> uh, even missing in action and whatever, whatever. Uh, all of them brought back, 
their, their mines or whatever been identified for Excel on, on the 3rd of um, August we did a vigil and I did a vigil for a guy that we lost with, with um, my company. We were friends actually over there and we were involved in the same contact. Uh, unfortunately he didn't make it but <clears throat> the rest of us did. That was Gary Willoughby. Yeah, Gary was Willoughby. It? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and uh, mm. and I met um, some. I didn't meet any of his family because his sister was in Canada at the time. But someone very close to his sister, I actually told him because uh, no one really passed on to the families what actually happened on that day. The witness what happened, mm. um, you know, step by step by step by step. And I passed it on to a member very close to the family who said, I'll pass it on to his sister and, and hopefully when she gets back, she'll contact you and maybe have a cup of coffee together or whatever. There's no problem. I'll do it. <clears throat> so uh, for the last 20 odd years, we have been uh, having a reunion. Charlie Company, uh, my company, the numbers are dwindling. They used to be every four years, and then they went to three, and now two, and now every year, once a year. And we just had one in August uh, on Vietnam Veterans Day at Aubrey. Um, the next one uh, is in Cairns next year, and then the following one will be the 25th anniversary in Port Piri, South Australia, for the 25th one. Fifth, uh, 25th. Um, 25th times we've met. Although it was 50 years ago, the war was uh, finished, but we've been meeting for 25 years in two years' time, from five to four to three years. So that'll be, they say, probably the last one because we're getting a little bit old in the tooth, and everyone said, Yeah, no problem, we'll be there for the 25th. So, so going off a little bit, um, the role, certainly the role. Uh, you are very important uh, within the company and most of my 20-year career was thank thankfully I didn't spend with my corps, medical corps. I spent with infantry battalions, two, two, four, four battalion, six battalion and I've been with infantry combat units, uh, engineers and that. Mm. I prefer that than being with my own corps. I had two postings Medical Corps, Lord Master at Watsara, you know, here and there, not my cup of tea. I prefer, prefer, there's more satisfaction uh, in being a medic in non-core, non-medical core units where that's where you see the results of what you do. Um, uh, also, um, how, how good we all work together. Um, we had had about two days uh, before we left to come back and everyone had to have a VDRL um, of the battalion in Vietnam two weeks prior to embarking to come home. <clears throat> so between three of us we knocked over probably 600 samples of blood we took out from legs, from knees, from arms, from legs. <laughs> we had to get blood out of people and off to the lab to be all clear VDRL wise to come back to Australia. So we did a great job in, in two days. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think we were even that modern in them days with the vacuum tubes. So we had to do manual, basically. 
Mm -hmm. Draw the blood a certain the amount, blood yeah. So put it in a syringe. Yeah, find the vein. In some cases, you have to use the leg. Uh, you know, find mm -hmm. a vein on the leg, but we have to get everyone done. Um, after six months, um, everyone was entitled to five days off. Whether you went to some place like um, Thailand or somewhere for your five days off, or you came back to Australia. After six months, I came back to Australia. I didn't go to any of them hot spots there. A lot of guys did. And a lot of guys came back with um, NSU and other, you know, other diseases, if that's the word, right? No, nothing's changed, I would say, Jess, in <laughs> 50 years yeah. as a nurse. Um, with seven hour hour for a number of years, nothing in that department has changed. <laughs> there you go. And, but the but the uh, the treatment was I don't know what it's like in the in the modern era, but it was five shots of procaine penicillin. Yeah, right. Big horse syringe, right? Mm. Straight out of the fridge was like it was like cream <laughs> in a big syringe. Yeah, and they had to have five shots, uh, one in each thigh, one in each buttock, and then you went back to where you started in the fifth day. And they were painful. Yeah. And there was a big, like, 18-gauge needle dearly mm. that went in. Because it was so thick, um, the procaine penicillin. And I don't remember the amount, how much there was. And, and I tell you what, they never came back to the boys. And I felt for them. <laughs> they, were, they, they were painful. Yeah. Well, they, they had to have it. So, mm. you know, um, have the shots and then go on tetracycline, whatever it was at the time. Yeah. Um, so... Well, obviously, but the guys that came home to Australia, they didn't have to have it. So, you know, I it wasn't the pleasure, but I had to give it. A lot mm. of guys, these procaine penicillin shots uh, out of the fridge. I mean, you try to warm it, but you can never get it warm enough to what you hit them with it. So, uh, and other than that, as the medic, um, there was every day, um, I was fortunate to go with my OC. He allowed me to set up in the lines, um, uh, twin 11 by 11s, and I, my accommodation was in the second 11 by 11, they were joined, and the front was my RAP, mm -hmm. or my CAP, company aid post, and all my stuff was there. So I had a sick parade every morning, and then anyone wanted, you know, I'd fix them. What I couldn't, I'd take back to the main RAP, which was about a 200 metre walk for the RMO uh, to see anything further than that. Um, and the role, uh, like I said, out in the field, we'd go out for about two weeks at a time. And I would my, I'd sit on, usually, um, very rarely on a gun, um, unless we were there for a week or two, then I'd go on a gun and sit there and you shift for two hours, two hour shift on a gun. And I usually cop. Well, I always cop the midnight one from 11 to 1 because that was, was on radio time, the quietest time. And I suppose the enemy were having to sleep as well. So they always put me on the radio between 11 and 1 and uh, on the machine gun between 11 and 1. So the first hour you came there, you were alight and the guy that you were, you were, you were replacing because you were always two on, um, he was already been there for an hour before you, so he had a bit of a break, and then you were the one, and then you had a break. So that's 
uh, rotated. So it did two hours. So that was, it contributed to, even as a medic, to the daily day function um, of the, um, the company um, in that respect. And uh, resupply, like I said, every four days. So if you're short of stuff, whether it be clothing or medication or something, you just gave a list and they would, signals would send it off and then you'd be four days later they would turn up <coughs> your resupply. Um, <coughs> we were, we were I, I don't know about Afghanistan, but I think it was very similar. Um, the Australian forces in Vietnam were allocated a province. Um, mm. uh, Fork Thuy was the name of the province. <coughs> it was equivalent to, if, if you were in Australia, you were <coughs> allocated Victoria, for instance. Yeah. And that's, that's where everyone operated. You didn't go out of there. And the Americans looked after the rest of the country. I think it was very similar to Afghanistan. You just, yeah, very similar. Uh, you had your AI. Yeah, so that was our area of operation. And we were very fortunate. You were, you were <clears throat> not further than probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes away with a dust-off helicopter and you were already on the table being operated on. Very, very fortunate uh, in that way with the dust off yeah. heli. That AME asset really um, come to its own in Vietnam, like no. we didn't have before, <coughs> no. did we, no, in no. our previous but conflicts? And the time to operation and damage control surgery no, just the saved a lot of lives. Totally, yeah. totally different. <coughs> Going back, well, I suppose the theatre war before that was the Korean War that we yeah. were involved in, and that was totally different to the Vietnam, Vietnam War, um, uh, which then again, the Afghanistan, a lot of similarities were there. You know, if, if you were injured or shot or something, you're only five, 10 minutes away from the operating table. Uh, and then if, and that was the first line they bring you back to, back to Newly Dad. And then they'll be waiting for you, you go through the triage into theater, if it become too complicated, then you would go to Vantel uh, to the field hospital, and then from there you yeah. went to 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 Germany via wherever or to Australia with the next major 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 hospital. But um, the good thing was that well, it's not a good thing. You were you know twenty minutes, half an hour away uh, from the table. Um, uh, in 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 my case, I saw a lot of enemy but not so much of our own people because um, I was used mm. to go on before I got to the chopper jungle penetrator or something so taken you, out so uh, you treated the VC fairly often then after a oh bout. yeah well like I said my job was burying yeah. them it was my job to bury them and, um, and in some cases you couldn't bury them straight away because if they were carrying a lot of documents <coughs> on them, they looked important. You have to keep them for 24 hours. And uh, if you remember, the, you know, the MASH movie, the little Bell helicopter, that's what we were using. The, the, the intelligence was using that, and the OC was, the CO was using that, the OC, the you know, little Bell helicopter from the movie MASH was the same thing. And, and if you, you got some enemy which were considered as important, you had to keep them. And then the little possum would come around the next day and they'd drop cameras down 
mm -hmm. have to take pictures of them, facial pictures and um, any documents you send up and then you've got the okay to bury them. And yeah. We're very fortunate they weren't large people, they were small frame yes. people so it didn't take much to to mm -hmm. bury them. And uh, I remember one encounter, uh, several guys walked in on us and none no, no Australians were injured, but two we got two of the enemy. Uh, the second guy managed to get away, injured, but the first guy we kept. We had to keep to take pictures and whatever. So going back to what I said earlier, I had to do my two-hour shift um, on the radio next to this guy. We couldn't bury him till the next day, so it was a really weird evening because um, no clouds, full moon, wearing glasses and I'm sitting next to him, the body, before I can bury it, and the reflection. And didn't know whether the guy was alive or not or dead because of the you know the reflection for the eyeballs and had to sit there for two hours next to him. It was a bit it was a bit imagine what imagination must have been through. Um, yeah. And you had to make sure that um, if that was the case that you they when you set them up that you set them up, you know, because once three or more just came in, you would have to dig a bigger hole. So you had to make sure the arms are next to each other, legs are next to each other, they were as straight as anything, so you didn't have to dig a very, a very wide hole. And uh, yeah, so the next day I was glad to see him go. And we had to leave the, sun, the glasses on for the photos and that because he had glasses and all we, when we got when he walked in on us, so he had to be fully identified. Mm. Intelligence was absolutely, I don't know how intelligence was in your time there, but it was absolutely crazy. Um, some of the stuff was unbelievable because that we had to react to intelligence. Yeah. You know, a helicopter flying over 140, 150k an hour sees elephant prints and someone makes the judgment on that, that those elephants were carrying very heavily, heavy weapons because the fo footprint was deep. So there you go, you go there for ready reaction. You, know, in, you get hot insertion, hot extraction, and you go for four days and find these elephants with the weapons and everything. And I had to go, obviously, go. And the, and the intelligence was just beyond belief. Mm. So accurate uh, intelligence most of the time when they were well, the trail of, of the VC you found them or no a lot of a lot of it but never never came to fruition. Okay. The intelligence, particularly um, a helicopter flying, like I said, at 140 kilometres an hour, they used to have um, equipment on them which picked up pneumonia from your, when you, you a group of people a mob, you know. If they urinate, the ammonia floats up into the treetops yeah. and heli helicopter goes a lot past and it can pick up the pneumonia. So that's intelligence. Like, ah, well, there must be uh, a group of humans there. Quick red reaction, go and find them. It could have been animals. It could have been whatever, whatever. So, yeah. so that sort of stuff, we knew, here we go again. There's, there's mm -hmm. nothing there, but we had to go based on that sort of intelligence.
you know, yeah. a, a bit of pneumonia, helicopter picked up, you go and find them. But if it wasn't for that, um, you know, we'd be sitting on our hands. So we'd go for two weeks, uh, come back for about a week, do up all their stuff and back out again for another two weeks uh, and just walk for 50 minutes, stop for 10. Smoke up, walk for 50 and then stop for 10. And that's how we went from morning until night every day looking for, in the province, looking for the so-called enemy. And uh, well, and so from my perspective again things like ingrown toenails got really bad a tinea really bad because you didn't wash in the shower for two weeks mm. uh, you just did a you know, quick splash because you couldn't really waste water so you, that was all drinking water so i used to do wedge resections myself um, yeah. remove nails yeah. uh, suturing a little suturing myself uh, people will cut themselves i opened them and i carried carried stuff to do that uh, but the wedge resection I've become very good at because mm. and then I had to teach the guys how to cut their nails properly because um, at times you never took your boots off. Yeah. You know, for nearly two weeks you walked. So the pressure on the nail obviously made them, them grow ingrown. They start to, you know, instead of growing straight out, they were going convex concave. So I had to teach the guys how to cut the nails instead of cutting straight across, you know, cut concave. So they grow out. So, yeah, that was interesting. And things like that, uh, you know, tinea. Uh, and a lot of guys obviously can wear jocks for more ventilation. And, you, yep. and you've got my, most of the problems with tinea in the feet, not so much in the, in the groin. But uh, being tropical, everything, every scratch becomes septic. Septic, 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 like you wouldn't believe and You had to be really right on it. Uh, Did I you didn't, have antibiotics? I, I had antibiotics and I was, I was allowed to give them out. But I probably did a few times, start someone on a course. Uh, but we had tetracycline. Mm. Uh, start a course on somebody just before we come home, it will come back. Because uh, I didn't carry too much of it, and then when they got back, take them round and review them uh, to the RMO or just have a look themselves, see how they're going. But kick them off. We did a lot of med caps, uh, the RMO, myself, and uh, a couple of the other medics very close outside the barbed wire would go to the local village and do some med cups there, which was really good um, because you'd be treating civilians um, and then you'd see the result of it. A week later, you'd go back and you'd see the result of dressings being done or something, you know, with some antiseptic and here and there, that's getting better. So, or kids with, with, with issues. So we'd go just outside the wire once a week, we'll give an approval to go with a, with a guard and do some medcaps on the locals, which was really rewarding because you saw the results at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and like I said, everything septic very easy, very easily uh, would go. And, and the other thing was obviously anti-malarial. It was taken out of our responsibility, taken away from the medics. It was then become a uh, platoon section commander infantry's 
his responsibility. And he, they even had the roll books that ticked you off every day and they gave you a palindrome. Right. Every day there was a, when you were in base, there was a parade every morning. Everyone lined up, medical all, and the the corporal or whatever the section commander would tick you off, give you a pill, and watch you taking it. And malaria was probably not really existent at all. I didn't really see anybody mm. in that 12, 13 month period end up in hospital with malaria. Um, and to add to that, um, there was a, another thing. So basically, we had palladrant given to us. And then there was another thing, I don't know if you ever heard of it, called Dapsone. No, I don't think I have. So, anyway, some someone in their wisdom, not the RMO or the battalion, but someone a little bit higher up, um, that must have done a judgment that the mosquitoes are being more aggressive and whatever, so they added Paladrin and Dapsone. Okay. Now, Dapsone, if you actually look it up, Dapsone is used for leprosy, right. treating people with leprosy. And the side effect of it was um, that it was good for the white, the red blood cells to, to protect them and back the palladrin, that it would become a lot safer for not getting malaria. And you'd take that for a couple of weeks until someone again said, well, okay, we don't need to use um, uh, just use palladrin and that's it. And mm. not forget the dapsone. So you are making two pills a day, sometimes or one pill a day. But like I said, fortunately, we, we never, there was no real, case, no real cases I remember of actually malaria, could be getting malaria. In my era, it was all doxycycline they took for malaria prevention, but it used to give the guys wicked nightmares. Did that happen on? No, no, no. Paladin no. okay. had been around for a long time prior to it. was not a new thing. Paladin, yeah. uh, I think it was in, you know, they mm. used it in, uh, in, in the theatre in, in uh, Korea. So it was already uh, around. Yeah. And then you had the detox at the end, but you had uh, chloroquine and primaquine and chloroquine uh, at the okay. end to detox for two weeks. You had to take it. So there was a lot of stuff that you're talking when you think about it. Um, after 12, 13 months, they've taken palladrin and the other, what were the long-term ramifications? Probably none, probably none uh, protection. We certainly were, I remember, sprayed, Agent Orange sprayed, uh, and we did a lot of, we had to go and do a lot of protection, uh, the company for the engineers who were ripping the jungle down. There's a little patch of jungle in this middle of jungle, that's where we stayed there. Well, they all were out with their bulldozers ripping everything down. And what, the, <coughs> what they couldn't um, rip down was sprayed. You know, planes flew over and sprayed. At the time, who cared, who, who really was interested. And I managed, um, to go back to Vietnam backpacking uh, when it just opened, the borders just opened really for tourism. So everything was so primitive, primitive for years and years later. I forget mm. what year it was. Um, and I was still working at a hospital in Mackay at the time and I had a couple of weeks off Christmas. 
and I went backpacking all the way up to Hanoi and the southern part to get a feel of post, post, post war what happened there. It was horrible, horrible. We went to a lot of um, um, places, you know, where, where a lot of abandoned kids were. Nobody wanted them, you know, with the limbs missing, a nose missing, an ear missing, uh, children, you know, little babies and whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, donated some money towards it. There was um, um, black Vietnamese children there because obviously there's a lot of black American soldiers there. So there was a lot of children there with limbs missing here and there and nobody wanted, they weren't orphanages. So I saw that, mm. the way the people were treated uh, at the end of the war <coughs> was horrible, horrible. That basically, if you had education or anything, you were sent straight back to re-education. So if you were a teacher or someone um, you know, a little bit high up, you were sent straight back to, to a paddy farm, paddy field, Rice paddy field for five years for re-education. Wow! And you could never your status would never be any higher than that. Because mm, you were on the losing taxi time. driver or yeah. something, taxi driver or something. So that was that was the punishment for mm. being who you were, where you were. So I was fortunate that I, when we were there, I, I, like I said, I don't remember what year, but it was around about the fourth of July at the time when we were there doing the backpacking. And uh, a couple of Americans grabbed us to celebrate, you know, a few drinks of here and there. And I really got to meet a couple of really nice, they weren't soldiers, but they were uh, engineers there that were uh, looking for oil and gas exploration mm -hmm. in Vantau in, in that area there. And they invited us over drinks. And, and I had a couple of days talking to them. They'd been there for some time of the horrible things that happened there. You know, people herded into mass camps and whatever. Uh, I got it from somebody there, uh, which didn't didn't actually make the paper headlines or anywhere around the world what actually happened in the country. So yeah. that was a bit of that. And I, uh, yeah, so going back to actually the, the, the role of the medic, because I'm sort of going off on a bit of a tangent. Um, it was, um, it was it was um, very rewarding, I have to say. And on all the reunions, everyone knows you only as Doc, Doc, Doc. You don't remember 110 guys, but probably we're down about 50 now, 60. You don't. They all remember you, but you don't really remember them because you obviously change physically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you look. But they all remember you, and, then you, and you never, <clears throat> never talk about anything you, uh, to do with Vietnam. That's a really, I've noticed that it's about how are you going, how's your health going today. In my case, I ask, oh, I had a stroke, and I could tell me more about it. So I'm, I'm more into when we do get together, I ask questions about their health, yeah. what's happening with them, because I've got a few issues as well. So we talk about that, not really what happened. Um, <clears throat> 50 years ago, mm. we don't go over that. Uh, we don't talk about that really. It's, yeah, what happened, what happened. Um, a lot of civilians, <clears throat> you know, what's going on now with this? Um, we see by Robert's, Robert, um, ben there Robert was Smith. Dan Roberts, yeah. Yep. 
there, there was a lot that went on over there. I witnessed, um, I can't say similar, people being shot, it was just collateral damage, ambush, civilians were involved. Um, and, uh, you know, I had to go and do, do my thing mm. as the medic. Uh, if you, if, from that perspective, so I get angry when I hear all this stuff here now about the guys in Afghanistan, particularly about Roberts and whatever, whatever you did, whatever at the time, it's a spur of the moment thing, and I certainly, I can't bag him, I don't bag any of the soldiers there about anything because I've sort of seen it myself. Yeah. What happens, what you do, and uh, in anger uh, or whatever, and the, the um, our first our first of day one week one if you want to use those terms um, Charlie Company first operation out there um, the the you know because you you go there and you do a week or two of just going out just outside New that climatizing yourself and here and there well Charlie Company um, had two basically one platoon got two killed in one day. They stopped on the track and put a machine gun down a log, which had a mine up in the tree set up, Claymore mine, which wiped two guys out straight away and, and, and knocked a few other guys over. And one of my guys, one of the medics I was telling about, he got a M uh, mentioned dispatch or something out of it because he went and patched them up. Okay. Uh, but two, and that was that was the beginning of you know day one, week one. Welcome to country, mm. if that's the term. Uh, and and two gone straight away. So it was a wake up call to what reality was about. Yeah. Two young guys um, in that one split second, the machine gunner and the offsider both cocked it. Yeah, so that was a sort of the, the wake up, um, and and from what all the stuff that you learnt, you never really practiced because the difference again is, is if you're going to use a comparison about Afghanistan or Vietnam, Vietnam was all jungle. Mm. Afghanistan was out in the open, uh, in mountains and you know behind rocks. This was all jungle, jungle. So basically, all these formations and marching formations or oh, oh, forget about it, see you later. You yeah. just you just you just adapted um, to your own way, uh, the way things happened. We were also fortunate that we had uh, with us uh, an engineer or two, engineer corps, artillery corps, we had one officer in, in this company headquarters section and of a night time every night he would bring in artillery around you, around the, the perimeter of the company, just in case you got run over or something during the night. They already had preset um, markers about where they're going to drop the arty. So every night they were getting closer and closer <laughs> to, the, to the perimeter, and that was it. So um, they also come along for the reunions, uh, but lately they haven't. And uh, my battalion, 2RAR, was an ANZAC battalion. It was 2RAR NZ. Yeah. So we had Victor and Whiskey Company, New Zealanders, part of the battalion. They kept it themselves. They only come to see the RMO and get medical stuff, but they didn't really mix with us. The, the enemy was very scared of them because there were a lot of big Maori guys there and they 
you know, they, the frightening, you know, the small Asian guy and the big Maori guy, there, you know, they scared, they were scared of the Maori guy, the, the New Zealanders. Uh, they did things which I'm not going to repeat and say things. And so they sort of set a benchmark for themselves and they trained in Malaysia for two or three months before going to Vietnam. The New Zealanders, they were really conditioned jungle and whatever before they went to New Zealand, before they went to Vietnam. Whereas we did all our training in Australia. Mm. Um, you know, all our jungle stuff. And my battalion was in Townsville, two hour So it was enough around there to do your training. But for the New Zealanders, because they don't have jungle in New Zealand, they come and did three months in Malaysia to climatize yeah. themselves and then straight to Vietnam for another year, like us. And uh, yeah, they were excellent soldiers, all regular army, no, no, no voluntary, um, and they were good, skilled soldiers. So yeah, I can say that. But they didn't, they didn't um, mix with us so much socially. Stuck to their own thing, and and we can't even get any to come on a reunion. None have ever turned up on a reunion. Of the New Zealanders for some unknown reason. I don't know, probably used to come from New Zealand a bit far. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that's that was sort of the overall picture. And uh, even when you were in camp, the medic again, because there was five of us, one per company, uh, and one an admin company and one a support company. And support company had mortars and the usual non-mobile uh, people are pioneers, and they stayed in in, in the Nui Dat. Where really, they go out. It was only the three rifle companies, namely that's what they were, which went out all the time and rotated. And then one go out, one come back, one go, one come back. And even when you were in camp, you did a shift on the radio because the battalions were all on a perimeter. In Nui Dat, they weren't in the middle nowhere. You're on a perimeter, like Charlie Cup, it was part of a perimeter of two battalion. So the wire was just a stone's throw away. So you still had to mount a gun there and, and do radio pickets. So it was never a break. Yeah. As such. And once a month you got two days off the company and you went to Bung Tao to the town there and obviously drank yourself stupid, whatever you did for the two days there. And, but there was a curfew, you had to be off the mm -hmm. team by 10 o'clock. Never lost anybody, never had anyone injured, never whatever, thank God. Probably would have been really good decompression for a couple of days just to, especially on a 13-month tour. That's a long time to be in that level of vigilance and the jungle fighting and even on back in um, Bong Tao, you're really busy, you're still working, you're on guard. So that decompression, a couple of days to just relax every month? Well, you got on the back of a truck yeah. to go from, from Nui Dat to Bong Tao. It was about a three or four hour drive on the back of a truck for your two days off. Mm -hmm. You had greens on, you had to have a weapon and you had webbing. Yep. And you were sitting on probably 50 cartons of beer. And then you went to the RNC Centre, mm -hmm. and then you, you, your weapon went into an armoury, and your weapon went into your room, and then you put civilian clothes on, and then you went out for your two days and never come back and did your thing. 
um, drank tea or whatever. And this is just a funny point, well, funny sort of. Um, all our greens and our civilian clothes had to be marked with the text of colour because when you were back in camp, you, it was a laundry, Vietnamese laundry there that would wash your greens for you and whatever. And my number was VC51, Vietnam, Charlie Company, a number 51 on the nominal role in the company. So my civilian clothes had VC51. And when we used to go out and drink into the bars and the girls would say, oh, did you get 51 VC? <laughs> did you kill 51 VC? So imagine if you had a, if you were VC 100 or something. It's oh yeah, sure, yeah, I got 50 yeah, more. Oh, you're a big hero. But if you're like VC two or three, well then you're uh, you're not really good because you only got two or three. So that was sort of a little bit of humour. Funny. Attached to it. Yeah, you need that. You need a bit of humour to well, get it was, through it, tough it, times. It was good because um, the two days off. There were uh, there were places where you could go and uh, have a mess and steam, get all that mm -hmm. to all that weeks and weeks and weeks and having a shower under the normal shower thing never really were cleaned as you know, um, yeah. but to go in there and and get all that stuff out of your skin, go and sit in the, like a steam bath thing it was, and you walk out about a kilo lighter, you got rid of about a kilo of mud, and then you're ready yeah. to rock and roll and drink and party, yeah. and obviously you hid money. You know, in the left, in the left shoe for from between eight and nine, and then the right shoe between nine and ten. So you, you had enough till ten o'clock, and then your back pocket was enough uh, to kick you off with, and then you left the rest at the RNC center. So yeah, you didn't have to go into town if you didn't want. The RNC center had a swimming pool that was right on the beach, but you could have stayed there and just partied there. But going into town. And we didn't, and and probably overall, just going on figures, probably sixty thousand Australians at one point or another rotated through South Vietnam. Mm. Sixty thousand for five hundred and twenty-one. It's officially now one twenty-one KIA. Mm. If you do a comparison, the Americans half a million. Soldiers went through South Vietnam. The sixty thousand dead, thousand, sixty thousand. It's massive. Killed. Yeah. So when you look at there's fifty odd states in the U.S. So there's probably a thousand. So everybody knew somebody knew somebody knew somebody obviously who who, who was killed in Vietnam. So sixty thousand um, versus five hundred twenty. But if you look at the ratio horrible numbers and then 60,000 yeah. young men just gone you know wiped out mm. um, the, the American medics were, were um, we didn't deal much with them but they were 99% of them were conscripts so they were in there for a short time good time or whatever and when you sometimes when you went through some of the contact areas for a clean-up after them. They just left stuff everywhere. The shell dressings, um, syringes, um, they didn't even bother cleaning up. And, you know, they just didn't care. Uh, you know, if there was a contact, for instance, there'd be stuff everywhere. And uh, even, even like 
you know, a can of um, you know open food that we just throw into the bush, and then the animal would finally find it and go cut into pieces and make shrapnel out of it, which we never left anything, anything anywhere, any cans of any shape or form. We usually buried them so they could never be dug up and, and be used against you. Just Americans, mm. but they were. Look, you could walk into a Q store over there and say, so give us a shotgun. What unit are you from? Oh, does it matter? No, he's a shotgun. They were wild, wild. No, there was no there was no discipline, if that's the word, um, to some extent, whereas we couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't, you know, for us to go from Newey, that say the Van Tower, you had their permission. And when you're coming back, then you exactly where everybody was with the angst. You just... They wouldn't even wear a helmet. They'd just, you know, singles, t-shirts, driving the vehicles around with a shotgun, and it was not even an issue weapon. They get who knows where they got them from. So they were they were wild, wild children. Very loose. Yeah. And they were doing a lot of this on the hooch and the heavy yeah. stuff. Uh, well, they had access to more peth, morphine, injectable, the same as us. There was no stock take. Even even what I carried, there was no no one. Check if you took three syringes out, uh, you know, did you bring three back? <clears throat> so you could have, we could have done, you know, ourselves, um, you know, injected ourselves and become addicts out of it. But I didn't see any of that, and, and certainly there weren't any uh, addicts out of it. I knew some of the guys after we came back, and there was never any alcoholism, uh, medics I'm talking about, or those who had access to the injectables, like the more for the yeah. pet, and none of them ever used any of that stuff. So, well, I'd be, I think it'd be more frightening. Really like, professional. Oh yeah, yeah. Why would you want to be high when your life's at risk? Like, well, you know, well, the, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, well, the the the, uh, the thing was that I did probably ten months, ten and a half months for Charlie Company, and they said to me, "Look, you can come and have a bit of a break." will send someone else out for the last month of, of your tour. Tour, sounds like you're in Hawaii on a tour or something. So I come back and then I relaxed and worked in the RAP and had a good drinks one night. We got on uh, some cheap bourbon, whatever it was, whatever. They woke me up about five in the morning. You gotta go. The medic from A Company is sick. They're replacing him. Yep. And I was ready. I had all my stuff ready, but I was that hungover. I, I, I thought I was going to become suicidal. I was that hungover. Because <laughs> yeah. in that company, they put you out on the gun straight away. A company, right out. So something happened. Whereas in my company, you stayed in the middle. If something happened, as a medic, you know, whatever in the circle. You went there to, to do your thing and fix, but in this company, I company, you went out in the gun, right out on the machine gun and sat there. And I, I was had a bad night from the drink that night before I was hallucinating and I, and and they were coming towards me, the enemy and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I had safe, safety off, and I was gonna let off a belt, let off a few rounds. That's how bad I got. And I said, I got to get out of here. So I, I crawled back like a rat and said to the guys, you have to get on the gun, man. I can't sit here, I'm, I'm hallucinating. So now I'm probably dehydrated, really bad. Dehydrated, yeah. Yeah. And right at the end, um, the um, 
the mind body, I was supposed to go on the mind body on the ship back. It was about a six week, four or six week journey to get the name of the ship. I flew there and uh, I didn't want to go back on the ship. So a guy, uh, a, a guy and I went up to a place called Sass Hill, S-A-S Hill. It was illegal, you couldn't go up there. Just about a week or two before the before we're leaving to go, we had a few beers. Got caught. Got caught. So you're not going on the ship. You're staying back for uh, an extra couple of weeks, filling sandbags, your punishment, and you're flying home. Ah, <laughs> oh, that poor thing. So I didn't mind. And I'm sure as we're flying over the Pacific, the ship was still there. They were on a Pan Am flight. <laughs> Pan Am flight heading back. And, oh, hey, boys, enjoy your sun, sun burning. So, <laughs> so they snuck us in one o'clock in the morning into Sydney, three of us from three different parts of, of, of Australia, not from the same unit. Uh, we got together in a motel room. They put us up in, and I'd never been in a motel room in some swanky motel in, in Sydney, but from the airport. They, they took us and dropped us off there at one o'clock. I'm looking at the cupboards and I see all these fluffy slippers and all these silk nighties, women's nighties. And I'm thinking, maybe that comes later. <laughs> and the beds had coins. You put coins in them. And we didn't have coins. And the other bed, vibrating beds, never seen them in my life in this motel. You put a coin in the, and the bed vibrates a bit. And I'm thinking, this is really wrong. I've never seen any of this stuff in my life. High heel shoes in the cupboard and all this monkey stuff near three of us were there. So we start drinking and all of a sudden this, this couple walked in. They give us the wrong room. <laughs> At the end of it, I thought, oh, now I know why all this monkey stuff's in the cupboard. So quickly management comes and said, guys, guys, you know, because we're basically on the floor with all the old stuff out and drinking on the floor, none of this decorum at the, the table, we'll have to give her another room. So give us another room. I thought, what's going on here? Well, yeah, that's what it was. They give us the wrong room. So the couple come back about one o'clock or something, obviously back to the room and found three of us in there. And <laughs> you imagine what they must have thought, well, well, same as what we thought. So that was a bit of And then in the morning, snuck us out. Uh, on not weren't allowed to wear uniform. Had to wear civilian uniform and meet Melbourne. Uh, one got Adelaide and one to to wherever else. We never met again. We never saw each other again. It was go on. That's all over. Wow. So, what was that reception like from coming home after that? Like, seemed pretty unceremonious. Just to it was absolutely. Yeah. So you had your your leave and you'll leave what it was two or three or four weeks and then back to work yeah right and my posting my first posting was when we got back a place called pne greytown obviously you've never heard of it no it's um at pakapani it's okay. a real high high security place and I had to have a medic there because they were doing live explosives and live firing in the air and live whatever, so they had to have a medic there. So my role there was sleep all day, did nothing, you just be there. 
in case there's an accident. So for nearly a year and a half, my social life become nocturnal. Yeah. I'd go from Pukapunil to Melbourne, party, party, come back and then sleep all day. So I lost a year and a half, basically, mm. of just doing nothing. And then I was very interested in going to Portsea and then uh, becoming a one pipper, two pipper. And education-wise, I was right for that. <clears throat> but my social life then interfered with with what my job was. So I asked, it was like 50 kilometres or 60 kilometres away, like Pakapani or Melbourne, everything's happening in Melbourne. So I asked for a posting closer to Melbourne, and two, four area towns were. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I yeah. said, oh, I bought a block of land, I'm going to get married, which is a bit of a lie, I'm going to move down to Melbourne, settle down. <laughs> yeah, all right, bye. Going up. Well. Yeah. So I went back then <clears throat> to four area, mm -hmm. and three months later they amalgamated, two and four. So all the two area guys from Vietnam, they were all met again. I was still in the battalion, obviously. This is already now, nearly two years later. I was still in the battalion. So we re-met, rekindled friendships and whatever. Uh, obviously, the medics were uh, different. And, yeah, so again, as the medic, it was back to where I preferred working with non-medical units, and with infantry units, two, two, four, six was my last uh, posting, six battalion. Uh, in Inogra, I, I, I ran the RAP there, and throughout my years, talking about the medical side of it, we used to get just post-grad doctors had no idea, no idea about nothing. They don't even how to tie their shoelaces up. But they just the army picked them up. The army paid for the initial couple of years doing the the doctor ship and then they had to re give time back i forget the time two years or three years or four years had to pay back so i ended up copying about two or three of them come under sort of my wing although they were the rmo like i said the half didn't even know shit from clay if i could use that term yep they were young young doctors and so i had to do the military side of things with them they doc this is where you pack this is the vehicles this is the this is the you know the the what we take what we take out into the field. You as the RMO, when the whole battalion go out, you've got to take the injectables and blah blah blah. You're responsible for. They had no idea, so it was really good. I, I did have a couple of good young doctors who wanted to learn and and put them through the military side of things, not the medical, obviously, because they you know they thought they knew, but they had no idea of basic stuff. Even as doctors, they had no idea because you're dealing with, remember, 20 to 25, 26 year old, young, healthy, fit men. Yeah. And they're not old farts like today. So, really, the people that come through come through with coughs, colds, maybe this sort of problem here and there. So, the doctors really didn't really get much experience even in doctoring because I was seeing mm. a lot of young, healthy, fit men. Maybe yeah. with the, twisted ankle, very rarely with any breaks. And so for them, you can probably understand why after they paid their time back, they took off. They went back and just 
Yeah, so it was it was it was used as a <clears throat> so just before my well on my twenty years the nineteen eighty seven I think it was there was a massive Sydney welcome home it was already too late I didn't go um, I I didn't go uh, there was a big in nineteen eighty seven or something there was a big mass thing in Sydney welcome home yeah. years and years later. 17 years I, I, I was still in. I was yeah. still in, in the 6th Battalion, and the CO said, uh, I was a senior NCO at the time, and he said, no, senior NCOs are going. Because when you looked in the battalion in 1987, only the senior NCOs were in Vietnam. Yeah. Even the yeah. CO was in Vietnam. A major, yeah, here and there, maybe. But the, the warrant officers, the sergeants or whatever, all Vietnam veterans and all the corporals underneath were not. So if he, his, he said, if I let years go, the battalion won't function. It'll be all, it'll be the RSM, it'll be the CSMs, it'll be people like me. The senior NCOs go to Sydney through 1987, I can't let years go because the battalion won't function, which was fair enough. I didn't really want to go anyway. Pretty abysmal the way you guys were treated on your return. Like no welcome home parade, no recognition of your service, and just fade off into to work. And... As I was saying, just before I got out, um, this I remember the second lieutenant came into the RAP building and said, sort of, "Come and have an interview. You have a bit of a yak. Can we go somewhere private?" I said, "Yeah, we'll go up to the Padres." Office is not in. Mm -hmm. We're going to lock the door. And he had a tick and flick. Tick and flick. Asked me questions about 20 years later about Vietnam. Wow. How do you feel? And how do you feel? Post this and post that. Obviously, he had a job to do and it was a tick and flick. My reaction certainly was a bit late. Yeah. You know, so for me, I was with people for those 20 years. Same as me, all vets, Vietnam vets. So it was not like I was isolated on my own. Um, I was the only one in the ROP at the time who was a veteran. Mm -hmm. There was two other sergeants there that were under me that, that were not vets, the doctor said they were. But everyone else in the battalion that you said in the NCOs were all veterans, all wore ribbons and you and so you felt like you were part of something. Yeah. For not to be separate and say, well, to this officer particularly, who wasn't even a veteran, what am I going to tell him? Mm. How do I feel? I felt good. I'm getting out. I'm going to, at 40 at the time, then I'm going to go and start a new life. I don't know. I don't want to be here at 55. You've got to get out at 55. You know, you've got another 15 years here. No. Mm. So that was my little interview with him, and that was the end of it. Then, you know, then later on, I thought, um, He's probably going to do a report, send it into whoever what, you know, a bit of a fact-finding thing. And I didn't ask him, did he go and interview anyone else in the battalion, veterans, you know, and do a tick and flick about how they think and how they felt. Well, I probably all felt the same. Mm. You never really got out of that mode for the 20 years because you were still going to exercise, even in Australia. 
Uh, and the other noticeable thing was from the early days when we came back um, from, like I said, carrying pethidine warfarin, giving out tetracycline and giving shots, uh, I had a post in the three-camp hospital at Pakapanyal there, and I wasn't even allowed to give out a Panadol. Wow. No, you had to get permission of the sister to get it clear to give a patient. Uh, so that's why I wanted to avoid being posted to a medical unit like a care hospital or field hospital or something like that because you couldn't even give a Panadol out legally. You could do what you like overseas, but in Australia, certainly you couldn't. And I suppose the legality of it is, you know, you might, if you cause harm or something like that, you're, you know, you're, you're bound by different rules. If you're on active service, there's rules, or if you're in the country, there's different rules about what you can do, what you can't do. Mm. So I, um, when I got out, I had a business contract with Tip Top Bakeries for five years. I felt I wanted to go and start a business for five years, and then after that, I, I burnt out. You know, I went to Swedish blue eyes and blonde hair. I went grey overnight for the five years because it was hard work, seven days a week doing bread. And then I went back to doing medical things. So I uh, worked at the Marta Hospital in Mackay for 10 years, uh, five on the before palliative care. Mm -hmm. I worked in there for four years, which was enjoyable, but not enjoyable. And then they said to me, um, um, you want to do a trial as a purchasing officer? Totally different. I said, let's go and do it. So I ended up purchasing officer for the next five years of the hospital. So I went right away from patient care, patient, whatever, whatever. And then it, that was in 2005. Then I applied for my gold card, and the hearing was got tinnitus and bloody PTSD and all that. And in 2005, I uh, was granted my gold card and I retired, sort of. So that was it. We never. Was it easy to move your um, medic skills over to the civilian sector and work in the market? Yeah, yeah, it was on. Well, palliative care is very different. I don't know if you ever worked, in, very different. Yeah. Oh, too sad for me. I mean, I like it when people get better and go home at least. Yeah, well, I started off in the wards, and but I started off in a ward, in a, in a um, general ward, uh, and then part of my run for the day was to go and do uh, a quick palliative care, more so in helping the nurses, you know, roll patients and here and there and here and there, my uncles, there was only like young girls in there or whatever. And then they left me there full time. So I'd mm. become, a, probably my own child, I'd become attached to a lot of patients, which I knew, you know, they, they were there for a short time, not a long time, which is wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I think in one, so between myself and another guy, a, a medic also, um, civilian, he wasn't military. Um, I know it's a, you sort of had a, you had to have some humour working in palliative care, you had to have some humour, right? So in one year, I took down 26 people, you know, down to the cauldron, and I put, put a rotor on the notice board and then, Every time he would, he would write. So we're neck and neck in the numbers of people. It was, it's like, it was 
you had to have the bit of humour, right? That you took down and passed away. And uh, <coughs> and uh, the sister in charge of palliative care, I forget her name, she's a really nice lady. She picked up those numbers, she knew exactly what they were, and sort of a wink and a nudge, and I know what that, that is between you two guys, and I'm not going to be a Catholic hospital, you know, the real almighty here and there, she just said, no, it's fine, I understand, but you need to have that outlet, a bit of whatever, whatever, and <clears throat> yeah, so, that, and things was, was disguising, was the horrible part. Yeah. People take them down to the cauldron because they're on the second floor and you have to go down the lifts and here and there. There's civilians walking through the people coming into the hospital. You have to make them look like they were ill and you're taking mm. them to another part of the hospital. You didn't cover them sheets and all that, you know. But, uh, you know, they were all exposed and on the trolley and you instead of going to x-ray or somewhere, you went into the cauldron. So yeah. four years and five years out, it was stressful, but Again, it was rewarding in some way because you made some really, really, really good contacts with people who were related to the people you looked after. And many times in the street later, in the street shopping centre, hey, hey, Jess, how you going? Remember me? You, you were looking after my wife when she passed away. Hey, this, this guy, he's great. Shut up, stop it, stop it. You know, you get that sort of. Um, from people who are related to people you, you, you were looking after. So mm. in the street, that's would say, hey, just thanks, mate, for what you did for my wife, and here and there, and here and there, and went on for years later. So there was that reward, you know, you're doing your job. Yeah, <clears throat> so that was your, that was the job. Um, so really there's no, yeah. once they got put on drivers there, you know, you knew that a couple of days you'd be, they'd be gone, you could predict it. Predict. So that was, again, you know, the medical side of things. Uh, like my job was in Vietnam, but at least in this time case, I didn't have to bury people. <laughs> I just, the, the undertakers come and um, took them away. <clears throat> so me and this other guy, Bob, worked together. We got invited one year by the undertakers, by a local undertaker, there for a Christmas party. I won't go into the, the detail of it. What were the things that were said, you know, barbecue, mm, yeah, whatever. We went, we had a couple of beers and then we didn't stay. We, we took off a little bit too yeah. heavy duty. and went to town, then partying and drinking or whatever. So, yeah, especially in a small town like Mackay, you know, small community, everybody knows, everybody knew everybody and, and there's a lot of a big Italian Maltese community there, and you know how Catholic they are. Italian Maltese, Catholic, Catholic, Catholic. So, um, so when someone's in palliative care, you get fifty of the family there around the bed, you know, and a lot of young, young, <coughs> young people, you know, young, young children, uh, but not teenage. You know, the very young kids who come there. Um, or, you know, uh, uh, women, men and women in their 30s, for instance, you know, bowel cancer here and there, they come for their last few days there. Or really old, 70s, you know, that, you know, that, that's, they've had this, served their time, if that's the word. But that four years, five years was really, 
at the time, get the shut, shut away from it. You didn't, you didn't take the work home or anything like that. The same as you shut off for 12, 13 months when you had to bury people. No. Yeah. Did you find you got PTSD after Vietnam or did you sort of reconcile your experiences and, and keep no, well, keeping I, on? Um, I was fine after I got out. I did the bread for five years and then I, I sold the bread and then I was having a bit of a break and there was a reunion on in Townsville and I was 300k away in Mackay and I decided to go to it. That was my first one I went to. Originally the reunions were one platoon, nine platoon only. And then they decided to add seven platoon, eight platoon company headquarters into their reunion because obviously the numbers were dwindling in one platoon eventually to make it a whole company thing rather mm. than a platoon. So I went to it and um, yeah, they were playing music, they were playing cassette tapes of guys who taped helicopters coming over. So I, I, uh, and the guy that had all them tapes, he was one of my infantry medics, a guy named Speedy Hudson from uh, Tasmania who's passed away. And he was sending all these tapes back to his mum in Tasmania. Hey, mum, I'm here, there, I'm riding to you here, and you can hear in the background the helicopters. And they were playing all that mm. out loud to everybody. So I left, got my car, and went home. And I, I lost the plot. And that's when, mm. that's when I started to uh, yeah. look for help, help. Yeah, so um, diagnosed PTSD, whatever, whatever, and uh, with a lot of things with the hearing loss and tinnitus and smoking, a lot of heavy smoking. And that, I, I didn't have a problem, but basically straight away. And I was probably one of the very last because the, the ruins, some of the ruins I went to, they're saying to me, Doc, why don't you go and apply for your gold card? What for? I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. Now, 90% of them already had their gold cards, and I thought, no, I'm going to keep, keep on marching on until I really uh, need it. And then, then uh, yeah, lost the plot. If that's the word. And uh, I'm okay now, but just certain things. That um, you relive things, and um, and probably the, I was seeing this psychiatrist in towns for some for a couple of months there. A really good guy, English guy. He was looking after Afghan, Timor, Vietnamese from Vietnam soldiers. So he had a cross section of 
the latest Afghan team war, Vietnam, is booked out for a whole year, and I was singing for a period of time. Really, really excellent, excellent guy who put me sort of on the straight and narrow and talked, you know, talked me, you know, got me back to on the road again. Um, I was saying, excellent military guy, and I remember the first couple of times I saw him, which, which you have to, um, you can quite proudly say that. that we know where every one of the 520 um, one or two Australian soldiers even those that weren't killed in action and died of natural causes there we had a couple in our company who just died of anemia one young guy came in saw the doc doc sent him off for blood test he went to the hospital and he passed away there from anemia not even from nothing Gun, but he was considered as, yeah. as um, um, you know, in the war zone, and and my my mm. first thing, first thing was we, the thing that we know where every one of the five hundred and twenty-one, twenty-two are. They've been brought back here and there, and the ones who I've buried. Probably ten. Nobody knows. Yeah. They got family too. Mm. Brothers, sisters, mothers, whatever, and wherever in uh, the jungle, the rubber plantations, wherever they been, nobody would have ever, ever know where they are. Found them, identified them, who they are. Um, and their families to today probably don't even know where they are. Um, Tough though, because what other option did you have? You couldn't leave them there to decay. You couldn't um, bring them back. You you had no option to but to do what you not did. Allowed to. Incredibly not allowed tough. to. Yeah. yeah. So and like I said, my my boss said, "Doc, you fix them." You bury them. So that was my job. And probably grab another guy, depending on how long we're staying there for, and they would put a shell scrape in, that's yeah. all. Not not a proper not not a you know, shell scrape mm-hmm. and then cover them, see you And uh, so that was my big thing about like I said, we know where every one of ours are from our perspective. But from the thousands and thousands if not hundreds of thousands they don't know the families don't know where their brother sister is buried um and they they didn't have deep graves like i said so maybe at some point animals come up night and dug up and you know exposed them and then whatever whatever probably end up, you know, animals end up eating, you know, bits and pieces of them, whatever, whatever was in there. Whereas, you know, if you bury them five, six feet down, the chances of them surviving and staying, you, you couldn't do that because the ground was so freaking hard in some place that you couldn't even get down that far. So you had to be quick. And, uh, but that was this 
<clears throat> the sad part. And I remember one time um, there was a massive contact where Willoughby was killed on that contact. It was stopped on a creek bed and they sent a patrol up this way, that way, two minutes later, bang, 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 and they brought two enemy back. And then on the other side, there was a system of about 100, 120 of them, a big bunker system of the enemy there. But after a few shots, um, they started to take off, and that's where Willoughby and Ape Platoon were after them. And that's where Willoughby was. Mm. Someone took a pot shot and they killed Willoughby. So those two right to bury. So rather than two separate graves, I dug one a little bit deeper and put them both in together. Um, so I didn't have time because we were moving out and going. And we used to have we used to have interpreters with us. Vietnamese interpreters that were uniform and and uh, interpreted on our behalf. And he went crazy, this interpreter, when he saw what I did, put two together. And uh, he said, no, 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 the spirits won't go and you know, go to heaven here and there. Um, I said, I don't care. So we just took them out, got a little bit deeper, and still buried them together. But not on top of each other, but more side to side. And he lost the plot because he obviously is Catholic or you know, Vietnamese Catholic or something. And he just said, no, spirit, don't go here and there. So for me, for me, it was, um, I've got to do the job and you want to come and help me do yeah. you know, Of course he wouldn't have. Mm. And, uh, and that was that particular incident, that particular contact, I still think about sometimes probably one of the worst the worst in this after everything calmed down and settled down I, I used to be able to talk to our company commander Barry have a conversation with him you know about things and I asked him if it wasn't that day or the next day a few days later I said yeah so what happens if how would how what, what would have happened other systems, so what I was said, one platoon up one side, one platoon up the other side, one platoon up the back, and pushed them, chased them towards where? To where you would be on the other side of the creek, and it'd be like a turkey shoot. So then I thought, thank Christ it didn't happen, and they all got away. I didn't, I didn't want to be part of any turkey shoot because that's what it would have been we would have been doing because it was women and it was kids when we went through that system they had looked it was young kids clothes around the place and stuff so there's women and kids so i was i said to myself okay we lost gary but i didn't want to be part of a turkey shoot because that's what was the plan was he said barry said you use you and up me and whatever the signals and all of me Waiting on this side of the creek as they flushed out towards our position, it would be turkey shoot. I thank God at the end of the day, I didn't even think of it exciting at the time when he told me, why would I want to be involved in a turkey shoot? Yeah. There could have been kids there, there could have been. And, uh, 
Yes, and one thing, I never took a picture of any dead souls. Little guys that had a small camera that took a picture of you and there. I never, never, ever, ever had a second thought even because they were slides, egg for slides, you know, 34 little slides on a camera. And then you had to send the roll back to Australia for, for, um, for you know, fixing, for turning into a slide. And then they would send it to your home. You wouldn't get them back to Vietnam. The address you put on was your home address. So you set this roll back to Australia, they would um, whatever, turn it to slides. But then the day when you think about, would they have? Probably not. Developed them. You know, dead bodies, why would you develop pictures of dead bodies? So I knew you only had a second thought about even taking a picture. Oh, look at what we've got, look at what we've got. That was professionally, you don't go there, you don't do it. You don't go there, or you just do your job. And if you're told to go and bury these people, why would you want to take pictures of them? Yeah, you, that image uh, is always going to be in your head anyway. You you don't need any more <laughs> reminder of the horrors of war, and that's what it is. You do what you have to do at the time. Well, lots of uh, lots yeah. of pictures did sneak out of intelligence. Some people snuck them out around, mm. uh, photos and other of, of dead bodies, you know, or bits and pieces of missing. I did nothing for me. I. I couldn't be bothered. If you haven't seen the real thing, what excitement would you get out of the picture? And uh, and and yeah. I got called up. I wasn't actually at the contact, but we were just up the road. Um, nine platoon saw it. We're in a rubber plantation, and there's a, a like a small tin shed house in the middle of this rubber plantation, and just on just on dark, they saw four guys walk and go into that hut and they spent the night there. So in the meantime, they set up a proper ambush because they weren't in an ambush position. So they were basically walking down the track, saw them walk in and then once it turned dark, they set up an ambush around the house. So first thing in the morning, the first one, the first one that walks out of the house, uh, they let rip ambush. Got all four of them. Mm -hmm. But then there was a woman and a child inside and a grandmother inside this and I must have been related. So then they called me up because the woman got shot in the backside. The child was killed. Um, the grandmother uh, was still there, so it must have ducked. And when you looked at when you looked at this house from because it was tin there was no rounds higher than probably two mm. feet. There was not rounds in this ambush like through a window up in the roof because no one's that tall anyway. So the ambush was about two foot high along the whole side of the house. And uh, when I went in and found her, she was screaming. It wasn't a big caliber shot that she got in the back. So I think it was an M16 and then deflected. But through the interpreter, it was not because of the wound, it was because of the child. They already buried the child. The child was killed, they buried it at the back. That's what she was crying and screaming about, not about the wound. So I got an APC then. I had to get her out of the 
out of the rubber plantation onto a bit of clear road so that a helicopter could come and uh, pick her up, take her for treatment. She wasn't considered as enemy. So an so APC I got in, came in, we put her in the back, she was in a lot of pain as well, and then taking her out of the rubber plantation onto a road for the helicopter. Well, the bloody driver of the APC, I know what he was doing. He was making a very, hitting all the rough spots, you know, and I noticed that, so I put my hand up and grabbed him and said, stop this shit. Um, you know, you don't need to be doing moving and this and that. He was doing it on purpose, obviously, to cause more pain for her. I mean, not even him knowing that she just lost a kid. So we did slow down and we got her to, on the road, some helicopter came in uh, and the dust off and they put her in that and took her to a hospital. Whatever happened to her after that, I don't know. But that was, was her, <coughs> you know, her um, pain. It was not the backside, it was the loss of the child. Yeah. So well, I couldn't do anything. She's not interested in any sort of, well, there's no, like I said, it was a ricochet and it was probably an M16 mm. and not an SLR. An SLR round would have, you know, taken the leg off. It was just a small hole, puncture mark in the, in a butt. But the pain was not from that, it was from the child that they, after the ambush, the grandmother or someone already buried the child behind that hut, behind the shed. I didn't even ask where, why. So that was like the end of that, you know, and no matter, even even the driver of the APC, he was a bit of care, you know, a bit of patient care, if that's the word. She's she's, she's wounded, she's, not, she's, not, she's innocent, really. Okay, she might have been related to one of the guys that was in the ambush, but she's an innocent woman. And a lot of civilians had no choice. Mm. When the the uh, the BC in the black pyjamas, not the regular army ones, um, they would walk into a village or a town or something, they would demand food, water, accommodation, so that civilians couldn't do anything about it. They had to accept it. And feed them, give them food here and there. They couldn't say no, otherwise well, they'd be shot. Whereas the regular arm was very different because they all were self-sufficient um, from the north that came down. But the local, they were like CM, like Army Reserve, if that's the word. The local guys that wear black pajamas at a night time go and ambush, and then there'd be farmers during the day, so you couldn't pick who's who. And that's probably why a lot of things like the Milai massacre and things like that happened because you couldn't pick pick who the enemy was because uh, they were a bit like same in Afghanistan you couldn't pick who the enemy was you know they didn't yep one second putting an IED in the next farming in their field the next yeah shooting at you <laughs> you didn't know and they just morphed back and forth when it suited yeah. them yeah I think what really negated a lot of things for me was when the Roberts thing came. I remember that guy that came in and shot two or three Australians? Some uh, yeah, Afghan yes, sergeant yeah. he was or something, yeah. I remember. Yeah. Red on blue or blue yeah. on red, came in and shot yeah. two or three of them and then took off. And then and the, and the, and the, after Roberts and, and one of Bashir him mm. and then others about what they may have done. 
That's where I lost the plot. I said, there's no way in the world that no matter what he did, would it have been worse than what this guy did? So not long after that, I think is when they, the Roberts went out and there was a lot of revenge probably in that blue on whatever, in a way, to, for some revenge for what happened to the three Aussie guys because they were out looking for this particular sergeant. They knew where he come from, what village or whatever, whatever he did to shoot, but he was up in the mountains somewhere. So you can understand the spur of the moment. Um, <clears throat> spur of the moment, things happening. And uh, there was a guy named uh, Rabbit who was at the reunion just now in August. He was, the, he was tailing Charlie, uh, not Ford Scout, because the Ford Scout had to be small, thin, nimble. But he was a tailing Charlie, tall. And and what they were doing was the 50-minute uh, walk and the 10-minute smoker, so they stopped on the track. Because the tracks were safe to use there, um, mm. they weren't mined already around that time. So uh, they stopped, and he was tailing Charlie, so he turned around and faced back down the track, and two guys walked in on the platoon, so rubbing bang, bang. And they, they didn't even bury them, they just shot them, got paperwork off them, and left them on the side of the road. And, and I saw him in August there. He's had a couple of strokes and whatever. But he was also on gold car. Mm. So things like that at the time it's gone home, but years and years later you think, well they were enemy, they walked in on you yeah. and you were sitting on having a smoke. But, oh hello, bang bang. Yeah. And if you didn't kill them they Well kill exactly, you, so. exactly, exactly. And uh, I've had them walk in on me. I've seen the whites of their eyes. Mm. But I've been that close. But I couldn't fire someone else from the other side. The machine gun opened up on them. That was, that was, had nothing to do with us. A platoon had a, a, a contact and company headquarters had to find an open spot with the antennas up for the radio communication. So it's all blabbing, artillery blab, 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 blab on his radios going and then all of a sudden, shh, mm. and two walked in. I walk and I'm wondering, wondering who's, who's going to start shooting. I could see I'm probably four metres mm. away. Who's going to who's going to fire first? Because I had my, an SLR, not an M16, and if I had got up and bought a Tom clip, but you know, they had the AKs, one behind each other. AKs, obviously, they were in that contact and they were buzzing away from it and walking the us. Mm. We were not prepared for anybody. And then someone fired a uh, machine gun from the side who we went, shh. It seemed to have gone for two minutes. And we finally went out and retrieved the bodies one shot. Mm. But, you know, you're, you're firing and firing and firing and firing. And, well, I was even firing. Firing at probably a metre high or two metres high, and they're, they're already on the ground dead. So in that panic, one shot dropped them, and you, and you continue firing for another, thinking that there may be this door. No, they're already on the ground. So so when we yeah. brought them in, one shot, and finished the first guy off, went 
in somewhere and down some, you know, come out of the back somewhere, ricocheted off his spine and here and there. So, mm-hmm. but one shot. Yeah. But all these rounds were fired. Thinking probably there was 30 or something there or something, you know. So after a bit of a clear and patrol board, I mean, just one shot. One good aim shot. Someone got. But in the meantime, half the jungle was mowed down with everybody and everybody. And uh, with the FO party, the, the artillery captain and his two signalers always came with us. One of the signalers jumped up and stop, stop, stop. This is while the firing was going on. Stop, stop. You know why? Because they were wearing greens. Mm. He thought that it was friendly. And he jumped up in front of everybody and said, stop, okay, stop, right. stop, they're friendly. Lucky no one, yeah. no, lucky no one shot him. After that, uh, they weren't friendly. They were obviously wearing greens, the same as us. And, uh, and, and we've had our own people, soldiers, um, that were mistaken for VC. Um, because when you harbour up, you send someone out, you do a clearing patrol and you come in on another gun, another position, and if you're in greens and you're soaking wet, because that's mm-hmm. the humidity there, they turn black. So what was green when you walked out, you walked around here and it is now black. But, but soaking wet and so whoever is on the gun here sees you coming in, thinking, oh, there's the enemy coming in. So we've, had, we've lost a few like that. The rules of engagement you know, had to be retorting in about rules of engagement. So, yeah, so that was, that was, yeah, horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Now you can see how that would happen in an environment where you can only see a few metres in front of you sometimes. Exactly, exactly. And fireflies. Mm. Night time, particularly fireflies right. coming down the track, look like someone with a torch coming down the track. So, you wondered, right, and for how long before this fireflies is the enemy, is it, is it a torch yeah. or is it a firefly? You know, from a distance because you covered tracks. And they, the Americans introduced this a bit of equipment and they introduced a lot of stuff and they were testing a lot of stuff. So um, it was <coughs> earphones, like you've got on, and there's four, and these are wired, not Wi-Fi, four sensors in front of you, one, two, three, four, in a 180-degree mm. arc in front of you, in real thick jungle. So the night time, when you get up there, <coughs> you do your two hours in the gun, you put these earf- earphones on, and one little ring means the left, two means to left, right, three means that around, four means there. So imagine all night you hear, you hear a pig could walk past or a bit of gust of wind and the train of brass, you go beep, 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 and you like this little bloody night thinking, and they're only about 50 metres out. So after about an hour of listening to, you know, a pip and then a pip, 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 are they coming this way, are they coming that way, are they, so... It become to the point of you just took it off. You end up going crazy after an hour. Well, that you would, would. And then the old firefly 
it's half about not the first hour that you go on, you've got to be alert, and the second one, you, you, you're there as number two. Yeah. So the first hour, it just drains you. If you go there for the first hour, you listen to the beep, 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 these little sounds, and, and then you've got to remember, was it mm. pip to the left or pip to the right? One pip, two pip, four pips. <laughs> One pip, two pip, three pips, four pips. And it could have been a pig, it could have been uh, an animal, it could have been a gust of wind, you know, with a, a blue or branch, because I was so sensitive to sound. You, you could adjust the sense, so yeah. that's the sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. So it was a testing ground for a lot of American stuff as well. It probably was good. Would have been good, probably in Afghanistan, but certainly not in mm. one of the jungles of Vietnam. But the yeah. animals crawl all night, you know, around. We had the um, night vision. We night didn't vision actually have night vision as such. Um, no, we didn't. Mm. And it was very limited, whoever did have it. I think it was still in the early stages of it being invented, whatever. We're talking about 50, 60 years ago. We didn't have binos, yeah. uh, but not. Uh, we didn't wear helmets. We just wear bush hats. The Americans wore helmets, but I don't remember any any like night vision stuff on their helmets. Um, and most of the times they wore yeah. the liners, the inner part of the helmet, not the outer, because they're bloody so heavy. The outer, and they yeah. flop around. They've got to be tight on. So we didn't have to wear yeah. them. Uh, at all, unless you're at a fire support base. You went out to a fire support base and you had a helmet there in case you got mortared or rocketed or something by the enemy, you know, but not as a, as a company, rifle platoon company walking around all that extra weight. Um, you didn't have time for a helmet, absolutely. Yeah. Amazing experiences. You've really had a a really full-on career and done a lot. Yeah, yeah um, I, I, 20 years is mm. enough. 20 years is a really good effort. Uh, time time to move on. Uh, but it was certainly the, from the early perspective, as I said, to do with guys I hung around with you, and it was the best thing that ever happened. I got married, a couple of kids, got looked after. Um, you know, housing-wise, as you know, went married, married quarters, you and there. was always looked after. Um, the money was not too bad, so it was job security. I liked my job. Um, well, I had to like it because mm. I had no choice. You couldn't just say I'm going to work tomorrow. So there was that 20 years of, except for Christmas time, you know, where you had a bit of a lack and you grew a beard and long hair and all that, uh, to rebel for having hair for so short for so long. But there was stability there for you, and um, but at, but after twenty, there's the front door, and you've got to make it on your own. So I was forty at the time, young, healthy. So I decided to do a plan B, and don't regret that either. But I still stayed, still stayed linked to medical side of it. Even after I finished at the Mater Hospital, I was on call. I was living in Macquarie. Can you come in for a shift or two? Here and there, in stores, as the purchasing officer, the purchasing officer knew one is going away for two weeks. You want to come in for two weeks to do her job? Yeah, no problem. So, I still, the friendship I still have today, 
with, with the people I work with in Mackay. Yeah. I was still in contact with them. So that was the long-term thing. And originally um, a 10-year a stint doing Army Reserve. I was sent there. I created friendships and then went back later and then worked at the hospital yeah. there. But the people, the Army Reserve, so the first time I ever did Army Reserve, it was nine field ambulance. The headquarters was in Townsville. I was a one-man show in Mackay. There's a one-man show in Rockhampton. And most of the people that were there were nurses, the doctor there, there was ambos. So they were really medically really proficient. So my job was really the military side of it, mm. you know, hold parades on a Thursday, do dress check yeah. and, you know, weapons training and all that. So there's no more medical in that mm. way, which was good in a way because, you know, a lot of them were, were really proficient in, like I said, ambos and nurses and here and there. So mine then become the military side of it to teach from there. And I really enjoyed that. That was a one-man show. I was left all on my own, my own depot, my own vehicle. Yeah, great to pass on some of that military knowledge in operating in those environments for sure. Jess, uh, we've been talking for almost two hours. It's um, been a real privilege. Absolutely. No, look, I feel very vented, if that's the word. I've vented a lot. I'm glad. I Look, I feel honoured to hear your experiences. I've been looking for a Vietnam vet to come on for a while. So thank you so much for your time and sharing your story and for your contribution. And thank you for your service. Well, thank you for your service as well. Because, um, and what you're doing at the moment, that not many people, um, not many people would take something like that on. Yeah, it's, like you it's a privilege actually to be able to engage with people and, and hear what they've done. 